Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Eva Neupauer-Jones. Eva is the General Manager at Missenden Abbey, an event services company in Great Missenden, Buckinghamshire. Uh, Eva, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Fantastic. Uh, that's great. Uh, now, Eva, um, you've been, of course, um, with Missenden Abbey for quite some time in a number of roles, and you've essentially climbed the ranks to being a programme coordinator and eventually general manager as well now. Um, given your experience then, what do you think it takes to be an effective leader from those experiences that you've had? Well, it's, it's something very difficult to talk about yourself, but I think within my industry, especially within my industry, and I believe in many of the industries, uh, people are always at the centre of any um, any any organisation. And um, for me, the important thing is not to forget that. Um, and um, wherever I worked and whoever I was, I always looked for ways of how we can improve business by people. So um, I was always very uh, passionate about training and personal development and um, doing things um, as, a, as, a, as a team. Um, and I think that is probably the reason why um, I have always been really um, connected um, um, and, 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 and sort of grew through those through those positions um, into that. So I always um, love listening to people take their take their um, ideas on board um, and give them a voice. Um, I suppose that's probably the main reason is um, how um, I I work um, and how I like to then build up the business around me. Um, so listening to people and and um, take their take their ideas. Um, give them the voice, give them opportunity, and then try to step back from it as well. So I think that's really important as well is to take time time for myself um, and um, review because I think you know it's very important to stand back from the everyday issues uh, to be able to see the bigger picture whether the path is leading um, to take sort of an objective view. Um, the other thing I suppose as well is very important is not just to um, be surrounded people that you work with every day but uh, the, the one of the things that um, uh, some some people can find it tricky or um, challenging could be the networking and um, I do I do put a huge value on that um, and I do take my time out of the, of the office and, and go out there and meet with other people within my industry and sometimes even from the outside of the industry to be able to just um, see where um, how other people are doing um, what they're doing and why they're doing and try to find out so you know you sort of you uh, a new horizon on what's actually going around in the world um, um, outside um, and that's I think it's very important to not be able to um, always see the sort of the, the, the life within the, the the, the four walls, but actually see how um, the outside world is behaving and where it's going. So, um, and I think this is what my team is now expecting me um, to be able to lead them: is that whatever we're doing um, 
is, is just for the bigger picture. Um, so I think that's probably, yeah, I think it's probably it. <laughs> no, there's a lot of interesting uh, points that you make there, um, Eva, especially um, with regards to um, the learning process, going and networking with other people, seeing how they do mm. things. Because no leader is necessarily a finished article. They can always learn from other leaders and how they approach things. Absolutely. Um, that's important, isn't it? It's really important. Absolutely. It is uh, extremely important. And it's, it's that personal development um, um, that it just takes, you know, just to, to, to be able to um, see and um, also push my boundaries, push my, um, push my sort of um, uh, um, comfortable world. Um, so it, it's, it's um, I think it's very important. Um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's just extremely important that you sort of do uh, get out of your comfort zone as as um, much as you can take it. <laughs> yeah, of course, stretching and challenging yourself is hugely important in any walk of life, really. Um, going back to sort of earlier in your career, Eva, did you always imagine mm. during your development that you would eventually end up in a leadership position yourself? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm an extremely creative person, so I was always um, looking at ways of um, being creative. That's how my career started. Um, and really ending up in a hospitality business um, was uh, really by chance um, while I was actually um, studying uh, for a degree. Um, but I think the reason why I was probably more concerned about was uh, I wanted to do something within the industry, but actually I noticed that I actually really love working with people and there is no better uh, industry than hospitality. It's completely service-driven and it's service-driven by people. So, and I think that's how I then really found my niche um, and how I sort of um, I, I, I felt that I, that was my calling, if you if I have to say that, um, and why I stayed in it. Um, I, you know, I, I was um, very much in in completely different field, in completely different industry, but um, the industry within the hospitality is constantly changeable and it constantly has to be uh, flexible and adjust to the outside economic um, um conditions it probably I'm not saying that it's more than any other industry but it's extremely sensitive to the outside world um, and it is very fast so when the economy drops suddenly there's a massive change um, how how is affecting the hospitality business so what I and that is what I really like is that no two days are the same um, every day is putting you out there onto outside of your comfort zone because you constantly have to adjust very quickly. You cannot say that you will do it in six months' time. You literally have to do it there and then that week or that month. Um, and you have to take people with you because if the people are not there with you, you are not able to deliver anything. Um, we do not make products as such. Um, are primarily um, a uh, a duty is to deliver service. Uh, this cannot be done by robots. This cannot be done in machines. It is by people. So 
visit wise it's um uh, it's a it's a very very interesting um industry for um those that are not particularly um um involved in a technical bit so i'm a very much centric um a people centric person so this is why i've ended up in in, in this industry and why has constantly why it's constantly giving me um a feeding feeding mechanisms for my for my development for my um, uh, challenging um pushing to pushing the boundaries and and making my great self pick over time sometimes mm. so yeah yeah, for sure. And um, it's interesting that you do mention how um, the hospitality industry is very reactive to what happens um, in the outer world with the economy and especially with everything going on at the moment with COVID-19. It's a very oh. challenging time for business all over the UK and the world as well. And Absolutely. How, how have you guys found that over the past uh, few weeks? It's... Um well, I think the the challenging thing is is that is the uncertainty of it. Um, even though that we are so um, proactive and we can we are proactive as much as we can be, um, we, there are certain controls that we just cannot control, um, and um, and also our recovery depends on it as well. So the issues that we do have, um, and there are always issues, you know, in every industry, um, but is um, that our industry does um, have a huge amount of accounts labour. So these are the seasonal workers. Um, the recruitment for our industry is quite challenging because we do not always recognise industry as an industry to be worth um, studying for. So the the development that usually happens uh, doesn't usually happen within the mainstream schooling and education. It usually happens on on job. Um, so this is why we always uh, rely on, um, um, I would say, uh, sort of unskilled labour that we then develop uh, within within um, the industry. So we then suffer when when this uncertainty happens because people need the certainty. So we then have to have this sort of struggle point, um, especially with this uh, COVID-19. Um, at the end of the day, you know, people are, um, their, their priorities are their families and making sure that they can um, work and then they can um, uh, develop, they can earn money, they can go to work. Um, if the job is not there, then obviously that becomes very challenging because the uncertainty then goes. That certainty then obviously disappears. So um, it's 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 we found it that we have done as much as what we could um, every day, and then looking at the health and safety, and obviously safety of the workers and the safety of the of the clients, and we put as much um, as, as possible. But I suppose. Um, you know, looking at always, there is always a silver lining to every, um, to every industry, to every situation. So what we have now looked at that this is a time when we can, how we can, well, how we can actually make this into a, into an opportunity, because our industry is so fast. We we very rarely have a time to stop and think. So we ha- I have now taken steps with my team to take this op- as an opportunity to start looking at building things for the future.
future. Um, we've got loads of projects that we have started doing and, and, and developing and we are working on behind the scenes. So even though that we have closed uh, our operation for a, for a, a little time now because um, it, it was the right thing to do for all of our safety, um, we have now taken this um, as an opportunity to be able to work on things behind the scenes so when this situation passes, we're able to um, start off with new directions and um, um, new directions and, and a new things. So we we really have um, are taking this as an opportunity um, to be able to develop and take the time as a as a development time for all our teams, um, and therefore also create certainty to get to their job um, and um, well, certainty to do their job and actually give them a, a, a reason and focus while they are not being able to work every day um, that they can actually do something that is worthwhile and it will benefit for the future. Mm, that's really interesting. And um, before we wrap things um, up, um, Eva, I would like to ask um, as well, um, what you imagine the next year beyond the COVID-19 crisis will hold for yourself and for Missenden and what you hope to achieve in that time, especially in light of the new immigration system coming in and how that might also impact mm. the hospitality sector as well? Well, of course, what is absolutely um um, what we have found, and uh, which is absolutely brilliant um, during this time, is the technology. How the technology can actually help us to be more effective, and and we have really um, looked into different ways of working because we have to now work remotely. So, <clears throat> what we um, what we will be doing is definitely including more technology into our everyday. Uh, hospitality is not usually known for having a top top of the range, very fast technology um, applications. So we definitely looked into that, how we can actually do our everyday much much more efficiently. Um, and um, what we would like to do is next year definitely look at how people will, and their social behavior, how, they, how we can improve that. Um, so opening the doors um, to the local community um, even more, um, how we can include the um, um, sort of wider public, involvement with wider public. Um, so these are the areas that we will be definitely building on um, and how we can also provide um, a better product that reflects health much more um, than what it has been, how the how we can be the, the leaders within our industry to be able to do education around the food and nutrition um, and put that into our um, products. Um, so it really, um, the, the, the whole um, um, crisis that we are now facing is has, has brought to us um, how important it is to, to look after each other and ourselves. Um, so we definitely will be building more on that, um, that whatever we will be doing, there will be a, a clear reason why we are doing it for the well-being and for the health um, rather than just because it has always been there. So this is what we are now um, um, working on, um, that 
we will be definitely looking at more uh, a balance of the of the work life balance and well being and health. That's um, all absolutely fantastic. And uh, Eva, it's been an absolute pleasure and really insightful having you on the programme to discuss these issues today. And I think it would be fantastic to even have you back on in a few months' time just to look at this retrospectively and see absolutely. how Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. It my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been fantastic, Eva, and thank you so much for coming on to the programme. Um, we now take have- care. You take care of yourself. We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection... was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Uh, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. 
in those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. 
No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the capture trap bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later. Uh, and you were lucky enough to be privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. 
And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted there'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough if they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself um it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be it doesn't matter you know how gregarious and and how um impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt 
no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you do explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing 
prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re uh, wearing red. So what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they, they were right behind us, and um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I'm, I'll I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.